All right, let me do this very quickly. Welcome to Stories from the Atlantic, Season 2. And I'm just going to admit the reason behind that long hiatus and to explain what got me back uh, to making new episodes, this being the first of them. Briefly, Stories from the Atlantic, Season 1, ended, and I went to travel in Europe. I recorded radio shows uh, around Europe. It was England, it was Norway, Denmark, Switzerland, and Greece. It might have been another country as well. I got back, didn't start another episode, and then months passed, finally two years, and I kept saying to myself, I really need to get back into making uh, stories from the Atlantic. What did it take? Uh, Thousands of earthquakes, possible volcanic eruption, and three young boys that uh, I interviewed, and I promised them I'd get this show done. So this show is for them. Well, buddies, thank you so much for your great insights into uh, earthquakes in your local town. And so let's just start this. We start this episode by getting in the car on a Saturday morning in March. I drove out of town through Hapnafjörður, a suburb town of Reykjavik, Iceland's capital, heading to the small town of Grindavík. Purpose of my day trip was to make a show about the recent earthquakes that have shaken the southwest part of Iceland, but mostly the inhabitants of Grindavík, a fishing town, small fishing town, located on the south side of the Reykjanes Peninsula. The quakes had been increasing in the last two weeks, and by now they numbered tens of thousands, with near-daily quakes, over four on the Richter scale. Though far from the big quakes, synonymous with Japan, San Francisco, and Italy, their numbers are what makes them a unique event, which at this point points to a volcanic eruption. The manifestation of volcanic eruptions in Iceland are twofold. One is in the form of palagonite tough mountains formed underwater or under glaciers, which for thousands of years, even hundreds of thousands, have carved and shaped the shape of mountains. The other visual manifestation is lava flows, clearly visible as they were formed in the last 10,000 years after the Ice Age glacier left its grip on the island. As I drive out of town, my attention is on the various small patches of lava still visible between buildings. Even street names refer to lava flows or Rhön, Sletarhön, Trönerhön, and a list much, much longer. As I drive over the last hill out of town, the Reykjanes Peninsula appears. A blanket of lava fields covering the peninsula on both sides of the highway leading to the airport. Just as the town thins out from apartment buildings to an industrial zone with an aluminum smelter, the lava finally takes over. Black and rugged, variously vegetated by evergreen moss, forming a mattress-like quality that softens the hard reality of what a lava field entails. Most Icelanders have at some point driven this road through the lava 
on their way to the airport, situated at the end of the peninsula. But few probably consider it a visually stimulating landscape. Otherworldly to foreigners, bland to locals, until they arrive back home from abroad and appreciate simply being back. But, as a possible eruption makes headlines and geologists become overnight rock stars, the static lava fields suddenly feel ominous. Thirty minutes outside of Reykjavik, a few minutes outside of Grindavik, I stop at the scenic overview with a view of the mountain Thorbjörn, where the story started one year ago. No tourists might know the name of the Palaganite Tough Mountain sticking out of the black lava field, but all know the name Blue Lagoon, located less than a half a mile from its base. The lagoon has become the most visited attraction in Iceland, with over 90% of all visiting tourists bathing in the bluish water that actually comes from the geothermal power plant next to it. On this Saturday morning in March, no one's bathing. Outside the power plant, I spot a few workers inside, while steam billows in a hypnotic rotation out of the chrome chimneys. The roar of the steam is the manifestation of the energy produced by these six power stations built from 1977 to 2008, each producing around 30 megawatts of energy and so much hot water that most of it has to be dumped, creating the not-so-natural Blue Lagoon. The energy, hot water and countless selfies taken at the Blue Lagoon are the results of the volcanic activity that created the lava flow, known as Itlarhraun, evil lava which flowed from a series of fissures just about 800 years ago, less than a mile away. It was here that one year ago, magma started moving up towards the surface, literally lifting the mountain next to Grindavik by 4 millimeters a day in January of last year, totaling 2 centimeters. This was a clear indicator of a possible eruption. A state of alert began, and so did the earthquakes. One after the other, from hundreds to thousands and by now, tens of thousands. Some were minor, barely registered by the locals, going about their life and work. Emergency planning and geological scenarios began developing in case of eruption, which now seems like an unknowable countdown. Since then, the earthquakes have moved further east, away from the town, which in some respects is positive. I drove into town at around 10 a.m. and headed for the gas station, a local meeting place in every small town around the country. The day ahead was unplanned, aside from meeting a friend and hopefully recording the sound of an earthquake. But first, a few interviews, starting with Jenge, Polish-born living in Grindavik for the last few years. 
today sago yeah exactly so uh, the grand zero of the quake was somewhere clo close to that mountain forbjorn uh, the name of mountain is probably so wow almost everything just fall down in my apartment on the floor it was very interesting event very interesting you know just wow it's really 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 interesting uh, situation you know I, in the in this moment i was concentrated focused on my computer so i was not so scared but if not this it will give me almost heart attack it was just wow i'm not sure what what to expect because it's something new for me it's new it's definitely new experience in my life Iceland is the first country when I, where I will experience the earthquakes, for sure. But I'm not feeling really afraid about that. I, I'm more interested. It's 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 exciting, more exciting than than fearfully. Living with his girlfriend and a friend, he said he didn't really talk that much to locals, and so was not sure about the conversation happening in town regarding the quakes. There are a lot of residents in the Reykjanes Peninsula of Polish descent, many working in the fish industry. Though I don't know the details of general Icelandic skills and social interaction, the authorities felt it necessary to hold a separate information meeting for foreigners the following day. Though the earthquakes need no language skills to be fully comprehended. Information about what is going on and what to expect in case of evacuation needs to be translated. As I sipped a cup of coffee by my car, I spotted a young man walking from the grocery store. David Kasperson's backstory of living in Alberta was this. I was going to become an iron worker in Alberta, Canada. Half Icelandic, half Canadian. He told me that after rehab, he'd gone to Alberta, where a lot of people do all sorts of manual work. Not that office and Thai bullshit. He began working in landscaping and demolition. But when he saw some guys working on a tall building, tightening bolts and stuff, he knew what he wanted to do. He began saving money for school. But shortly after that, COVID hit and all work in the oil-dependent region grinded to a halt, with people losing their homes and unemployment rising. So he returned to Iceland and got a job at the fish farm in Grindavik, which is where he felt one of the big quakes. The water started gushing out and fish followed. An unreal and chaotic event, but he himself says he doesn't really feel the quakes that much. And then... The second one he felt was... So um, <clears throat> so what are we doing here? The uh, later earthquake? Yeah, the second one. So the first the one is, is the fish dying, yep. crazy the... waves in the in the tanks. Yep, and then um, the second one, me and Buddy were just out here on a fucking walk, right? It was all nice and jolly. And then it was, it, I kind of heard it coming from like, like oh, what's that? Whatever. And it happened very in a split second. And then um, yeah, everything started shaking, almost shat my pants. And... Um, yeah, that was that. And it kept going for like another five minutes, just like these little small ones, you know, like aftershocks or something. 
but otherwise, yeah, I'm pretty oblivious to uh, the earthquakes, unfortunately. But the one that happened when you almost fell, yeah. when you looked around, could you see anything moving? Or oh, that's the weird thing. It was like, it, everything in this country is made of concrete, right? So these big earthquakes, nothing really moves anyways. Like, it's pretty impressive, the structures here and how they are built for all these earthquakes. It, it really is. I asked him about the general perception in terms of the continuous shaking. But like people here, they do pay attention to the quakes. I mean, nobody's gotten yeah. used to them per se that it's like... No, it's not like, oh, whatever, like, you know, it's another quake. People are definitely aware of them and stuff, but there's uh, levels of how much certain people care. You know, like I have a friend who like, oh, felt a little vibration in the ground, and now he's whipping up his phone. He wants to know exactly what happened. And the next guy will be like, my dishes are still in their place, so we're fine. For the most part, I don't know what, like, what to do with this information, right? Like, unless it's, get the hell out of here, we're all gonna die. I don't want to hear it, personally. Like, it's kind of fun hearing bits and bobs here and there, but nothing really big has happened. Like, I haven't seen any cracks in the roads or, like, no one's died or anything. So, I don't feel the need every time I walk into the gym or something that like all the TVs are blaring about it, everyone's talking about it, oh, we're gonna evacuate. It's like, either we do it or we don't. And if we're not gonna do it, let's do something else. You know what I mean? And the conversation, you and your friends, is it a big uh, part of your conversation? Yeah, it is because, um, at least for my half, they, um, it's not as big for them. But since I moved to Canada and stuff and earthquakes are not a thing there, I often compare the two different landscapes and just how exciting everything is here. How it's just like, it is intense and stuff seeing all these earthquakes and stuff, but if that would happen like in Edmonton, meltdown. Everything would go to hell. People would be freaking out. But people here are like sometimes stressed, but not freaking out. It's just, okay, put stuff in a bag. We should be good. You know what I mean? As I walk to the grocery store, I flag the car leaving the driveway and ask the driver, Stefan, a local, whether he was worried about the quakes. No, and leave it at that. He acknowledged that it deferred by individuals, but he himself was not faced by it. I was told that outside the grocery store was the hunting grounds of journalists from the capital when they arrived to interview the locals. For some, it was a nuisance being asked to be interviewed for national television, but I, on the other hand, was a nobody with an unknown podcast, which made Guðni Sigurðardóttir agree to tell me about how the quakes have affected her in the last two weeks. She says it's worse now than it was when it started a year ago, and she is starting to feel afraid constantly ready to run out. The big quakes feel creepy and now feel harder than a year ago. Her house not only shakes, but kind of feels like a boat rolling. She's taken stuff off the walls and stiffens up every time it shakes, running to stand under a doorframe. The sofa shakes, the TV shakes, and she feels like she's at sea. She says she's the worst in her family. The kids sometimes trying to comfort her, but she comforts the cat. She and her friends have a chat and support each other and find comfort 
in meeting up for coffee. Regarding the constant news and coverage, she thinks that's fine, and actually feels that there's support in journalists coming to ask locals, thereby showing their support. Her father shrugs it off, and she thinks the older generation is less affected by such events. Finally, she said that the community stands tightly together, connecting a lot online, and the town keeps people posted. It was perhaps a sign of my lack of research that a few hours later there was a community meeting with the authorities while I wandered around town and waited for an earthquake, which by noon had not hit. In that meeting, which I listened to on the way home, a geologist went over the newest predictions and locals vented some frustration about yesterday's event when the electricity went out for nine hours. This had led to some fear and later frustration at the lack of information. People had time to imagine the worst, in the dark, shaken, with a buildup of magma just outside of town. But the organizers of the meeting stressed that all questions, opinions, and criticism was valid, and promised to do better on the information front. Later in the day, I went down to the harbor, where work was in full swing, unloading fishing boats of their catch, including haddock, cod, and wolfish. A fisherman told me that he feels the earthquakes out on sea, but unlike the shaking on land, it's a sudden blow to the boat, and then nothing more. The scene was lively and bustling, with small forklifts driving at race car speeds, maneuvering as they were competing in an intricate obstacle course, where open plastic containers had to be moved away as quick as possible. The importance of the fishing industry is of paramount importance for the local community, being a major job provider. This has been the case since the 10th century, as people began settling in the area and soon discovered the bounty of the ocean in front. Limited pastures due to lava flows meant that the ocean was the breadbasket, but not without peril. The local rescue organization, Thorbjörn, is known especially for their sea and rescue unit. The town is built on fishing, but for centuries, the accepted reality was that if a boat sank or you fell overboard, it meant certain death. The death toll could be extremely high, villages often losing a big part of their able men in one blow, represented in countless memorials in Iceland's cemeteries for those lost at sea. That was until the local priest of Grindavík, Oturvi Fuskislason, began campaigning for safety at sea, including teaching fishermen to swim at the end of the 19th century. But since 1931, when a boat stranded and all 38 crew were rescued with new equipment, the local rescue group Thorbjörn has been rescuing fishermen, often under extreme conditions. Volcanic eruptions, on the other hand, have not been on the list of situations the group has had to deal with on its home turf.
After standing around for 10 minutes, watching members clean the white large rescue cars, I saw the department manager for civil protection and emergency management, Vidir Reynison, walk out. This is the guy that's been at the forefront as part of a trio in the government's response to COVID. Nearly daily information meetings broadcast live led to him becoming a household name, sadly catching COVID, but now he was up against a new enemy. He was probably heading to the community meeting I was unaware of, nor did I know what I wanted to ask him, so I just let him go. But I knew I wanted to know what the rescue group can do at the present situation in the lead-up to a possible eruption. A question Boye Atolson, head of the rescue group Thorbjörn, was glad to answer. Now, it's all about preparing, going over the equipment and vehicles. They had just arrived from putting up a transmitter on a mountain to guarantee they have proper communication in the areas around the possible eruption. This was critical, as there had been areas that were shadow spots in the national communication network and could jeopardize the safety of rescue workers in the area. In the case of an eruption, part of their job is to control access and try to prevent the many curious and all too eager members of the public to getting too close. This is actually a stable part of Icelandic eruptions and dates back to the middle of the last century, when buses would take people from the capital as close to the erupting volcano Hekla as possible. In recent decades, with the public owning bigger and better cars, volcanic eruptions, especially the one that was the precursor to the famous Eyjafjallajökull in 2010, have become an even bigger attraction. People arrived in their big jeeps, heading up to the glacier, many unaware of the dangers and ill-prepared. I was actually present, working with a photographer, and witnessed the chaos carnival-like mood. It was like the flowing lava was just an amusement park, and I once screamed at the group of people walking towards a weak snow overhang, lava flowing beneath. But even if eruptions have not happened in the area of Grindavik since the 13th century, all emergency plans have been in place for years. The importance of being able to think outside the box and react to unforeseen situations is the key. The rescue group consists of 70 members, but a core group of around 30 that are fully active, all volunteers. They are part of the national rescue organization, Landsbjörg, which is an integral part of the nation's safety. Volunteers, self-funded by firework sales and ever-present in any natural catastrophe, major accidents, and searching for those lost. Thank you. Though the option of evacuation by sea has not been considered a necessary scenario, the harbor does represent the possibility and echoes the reality facing the isolated inhabitants of the Vestman Islands. When they woke up to the sound and glare of a volcanic eruption at the outskirts of the town in 1973, I imagined what it must have felt like for the people of the Vestman Islands around a two-hour sailing from Grindavik, 
When they all, close to 5,000, stood on the harbor, about to be evacuated, many with only the clothes on their back. That was in 1973, and the fishing fleet of the small island community was thankfully docked due to a storm the day before. People fled and were welcomed to friends and family all around the country, and many never returned to their former homes. In Grintavik, there was a whole neighborhood built for the refugees, called Eyjahusin, or the island houses. I drove there and asked an older gentleman in a long, thick blue coat if he knew where they were. As coincidence would have it, he said, right here, and I'm the only one from the original habitants still living here. Though I tried, he was not willing to grant me an interview, having done so many times before on the topic, but he did chat with me for 30 minutes, telling me about the time he and a group of others convinced the chief of police to allow them to return to the Westman Islands so they could save the poor sheep stranded on top of the mountain on the island. They got the permission, sailed, and got as much of their personal belongings as they could. What about the sheep, you might ask? This was in winter, and there were no white sheep on the mountain, only that white lie to get them past the bureaucracy. But on this Saturday, it seemed like there were a lot of people out and about, kits all over the place, almost as if everything was normal. Of course, people experienced the events of the last year, and especially the last two weeks, differently. But, had I probed more, I would have found out that many people had left to go to summer houses, or just to get away. Taking walks, of course, means you are not inside a shaking building. The questions I had in my mind were many, some probably harder to come by when asking people out for a walk. Was drinking alcohol to calm the nerves common these days? Did doctors prescribe sedatives in higher numbers now? Did people fear the housing prices would go down? But my big question was, when was the earth going to shake? I'd arrived at 10 a.m. and by 12 a.m. had felt nothing. Fearing that I might miss the chance to record an actual quake, I headed to my friend's house for coffee, recorder on and ready by my side. I was sitting in the kitchen of Magdalena Margaret Kristjánsdóttir or Lena. As her husband and daughter were out cleaning the garage and tending to their three dirt bikes, I asked Lena about the last big quake she felt. The epicenter was less than a kilometer away from their house and made the floors move in a wavy fashion, walls shaking, and all she could do was to try and calm the dogs. Considering that the quakes had been going on for a year, with drops in frequency until the last weeks, we discussed the idea of getting used to them. She thinks you don't ever get used to them, unless they are the smallest ones, and you always get startled when it wakes you up. It's always as uncomfortable when big quakes happen 
and the mind easily goes to wondering about volcanic eruptions. She says they count a lot on the information from the town and authorities and are aware of all the scenarios regarding evacuation. Regarding the logic of the fear, in light of houses being strongly built in Iceland, she said that cracks in outer walls and actual property inside is among the worries, and so they, and many in the town, went over their insurance policies in detail in the last year. The fear one feels when something is out of your control is perhaps the biggest of all, and when the forces at play are so gigantic, it's hard not to be shaken to the core. Mother Nature can be a cruel beast, but then again, in case of earthquakes relating to eruptions, she is giving birth to new land, a new foundation to live on in the long run. But for human settlements, that represents a direct threat in the short term. My short visit to Grindavik came to an end, but had included a visit to the most popular attraction for the kids, where an inflatable curve-shaped floor gave kids a chance to jump around and not feel any shaking but their own. Parents stood around and one told me that the quakes affect the kids differently. Some are afraid, others less so. The schools and kindergartens had done a good job explaining the situation to the kids and reminding them that there were no major catastrophes about to happen. Though some worry about the possibility of an eruption affecting the town, the likelihood of lava flowing to the town are slim. But nonetheless, the earthquakes can shake a little soul pretty badly, like little Albert told me. He described the experience as feeling a pain in his heart, getting startled, but then it was quickly over. Though his friend just felt excited, it was clear that admitting fear was not judged in any way. Albert and his two friends also told me something of great importance when it comes to geological foresight. One, that there would definitely be a big quake today, as the weather was so good. And second, that yesterday's big quake, which came during a basketball tournament, was only meant to scare the opponents so the local team could win. And with that, I left Grindavik, stopping in the lava field outside of town for 30 minutes to see just if it would shake and finally giving up and driving back to the city. As I wrote up the script for this episode of Stories from the Atlantic, Into the Night, a massive earthquake over five Richter scale shook my apartment and could be heard in conversations on the street the day after. The events of the last year and weeks will without a doubt become a topic of conversation for years to come, but in the meantime, the question is, when will the eruption start? With a couple of webcams live streaming from the most likely eruption site and around-the-clock news updates, the eruption will not go unnoticed for long. 
and for the many sleep-deprived inhabitants of Grintavik, a town of 3,500, the desire for an eruption, and therefore the end of the earthquakes, is like a sweet dream to them. With thank yous, gratitude, and best wishes to all those that spoke to me for this episode, and all of you who listened, we begin Season 2 of Stories from the Atlantic. More to come soon.